Yeah, knowing, uh, knowing a little bit about the story of Saul, uh, you can find yourself asking the same question, how can this guy save us? My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Fellowship Cherrydale. And uh, as we've been making our way through First uh, Samuel, we're, we're coming to uh, a historic moment where uh, Israel receives their first king. Now, think of uh, this as we're kind of working there. John Bunyan uh, wrote the, the second most published or most purchased bestseller in the English language uh, outside of the Bible. It was called Pilgrim's Progress, which I'll commend it to you. If you've not read it, read it. Uh, it's an allegory of the Christian life. So it tells the story of the main character, Christian, who became aware of the great burden of his sin by reading the Bible when he was a, a citizen of the city of destruction. And uh, in that place, there's no one to help him, but a, a one comes along called Evangelist who points him to a far-off light. It says, go towards that light. And uh, the rest of the book tells the story of Christian facing the trials and the troubles on that journey uh, to relieve himself of the burden and then onward to the celestial city. And on his way to the cross to be relieved of his burden, he comes across someone called Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And he tells Christian, you should avoid the difficult path that evangelists set you on. It's fraught with danger. It's going to require faith and risk. And rather, do what everyone ought to do and head towards morality and speak to a man called legality there to figure out how you can deal with this burden yourself. And so he goes. And it goes poorly for Christian as he fumbles his way towards the cross because he keeps hearing and hoping in the wrong guidance. Worldly wisdom, legalism, fear, convenience, fatigue, until he comes to the cross where his burden is lifted, removed by the only one who can, and in the only way that that burden of sin can be lifted, by Christ at the cross. And the people of Israel, as we find them in First Samuel, are on a similar journey. They want to live prosperously in the land that the Lord has granted to them, but they're burdened by their sin. They're burdened by their neighbors. And they're burdened by a fear of the future. They want justice to deal with sin in the land. They want leadership to help them set their course for the future. And they want security from their enemies. But they believe that they can get what they want <clears throat> by following their neighbors, by following Mr. Worldly Wise Man, instead of relying on God. So kind of settling this story in the context that uh, we have in First Samuel. <clears throat> Last week, this week, and next week give three different looks at Saul becoming king. Last week, we saw the private affirmation of Saul as king, as uh, Samuel anointed him as God's chosen ruler. And as Matt pointed out for us, this desire that they have for a king, for justice, for leadership, for security. So you, you'll hear that theme again today. Today, we're going to see him uh, publicly crowning our crowned king and uh, the first acts that he takes while he's in office. And the next week, Walker is going to preach to us about the consummation of his power and his affirmation by all of Israel. So we're getting three looks at this big historic event. And so we're going to try to follow along 1 Samuel 10, 17 through 11, 11. So if you are looking in your Bibles, please turn there. Uh, I want you to have your nose in the text as much as you hear me this morning. And we're going to give you a sermon in one run-on sentence. Okay? 
This is a story of a misplaced hope in a reluctant king who faces a snake in the garden who's defeated by God, our deliverer. I'll say it again. A misplaced hope in a reluctant king who faces a snake in the garden who's defeated by God, our deliverer. And so uh, where Amy started for us this morning in verse 17, we're going to stop with just verse 17. Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah. And uh, this is a, a place where we, we start to hear some echoes of Israel's past. Uh, if you start by uh, looking at Deuteronomy 17, as we did a few weeks ago, and uh, God's uh, proclamation, his, his rule for uh, how people will live in the land, he explains to them uh, how a king should operate. And then we find that uh, this king, Saul, doesn't match up with what God has called him to do. Uh, and then we, we see in Deuteronomy 18, the instructions for how people are to deal with prophets in the land. Uh, that they must hear and obey the prophets. And even Peter picks up on that theme in Acts 3 as he's preaching to the people there and says, anyone who does not listen to the prophet will be cut off from the people. And we see that this happens in Saul's life as he goes forward. We see in 19, provisions for justice, and in 20, the rules for war, for how people should conduct themselves when they go out to battle as God's people. And then in the, the more recent past, we can think of the story in Judges 20 and 21, where uh, the Benjamin, uh, the, the Levite in Benjamin uh, has his concubine uh, essentially tortured to death, killed overnight by the people in uh, Jibesh, or in, in uh, Gibeah. And the, uh, the, the way that she's sent out to the people to call them to judge. And we see echoes of this happen in this story. And then Mizpah is a place that has history even in 1 Samuel. So in chapter 7, it's the place where the people gather with Samuel to purify themselves, to get rid of the Baals and the Ashtoreths in the land, and to pray and to fast and to seek God. And after they worship him rightly, God delivers the Philistines into their hands. And then not far from Mizpah, where they chased the Philistines, there's an Ebenezer, a stone of help, a monument to God's deliverance of them as they defeat the Philistines there. And then Samuel returns to Mizpah regularly on his circuit as judge in the land to judge the people. So Mizpah is a significant place. Uh, the word Mizpah means lookout or watchtower. So it's a place that we are looking out from. And so he's called them to this place and then uh, he delivers to them a four-point sermon. Right, you might be familiar with those if you've been here for the last few weeks. We're going to do a four-point sermon inside of a four-point sermon. All right, it's kind of, kind of meta this morning. Verse 18, so Saul, Samuel has summoned the people, and he said to the Israelites, point one, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel out of Egypt, and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Point one, God delivered you much to your dismay. Right? You, you got out of Egypt and you thought, oh, can we go back? At least there's food. We know what to expect. 
God rescued you from the great superpower of the day and displayed his dominance over the gods who upheld them as he dominated their domains. God rescued you from all the kingdoms that oppress you up to this very day. You're assembled in the promised land very much in spite of yourselves. Point two, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. Today, you're relying on what can be seen, not on faith. You want a man who you can put your trust in rather than God. You're seeking justice, leadership, and security, but in a mere man, not from God, who's provided it up to this point. Point three, you said to him, you must set a king over us. You want a king like all the other nations. And as it turns out, Saul looks a lot more like a king of the nations than a king who would seek after God. And then point four, now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Face the music. Matt taught us recently, sometimes the worst thing for you is to get what you want. And so corporately, the people reject God as king, and uh, we're grateful in this case that the covenant God made with his people in Genesis 15 depends on him and not them, or else there would be no hope for them or for us, according to Paul in Romans 11. So in rejecting God, the Israelites are saying, God, we don't want you to rule over us. We don't want judges to rule over us. We want a king like the other nations have. We want someone we can see and touch and hear and hope in. He'll deliver us. He'll bring us justice and leadership and security. And in hindsight, isn't it obvious how they've misplaced their hope? But as students of your Bible, you might be thinking this isn't the first time that the Israelites have missed the point. This is a particularly historic moment for Israel. So I'm going to skip a stone kind of over the, the history of what God's done here for the people. Um, who made them a nation to begin with? It was God. Who saved them in a famine by bringing them through Egypt? It was God. Who heard the cries of their oppression and delivered them out of Egypt? God did. Who promised to go before them and delivered the promised land to them? It was God. And who did they trust when they were on the border of the promised land? Men. And what did it get them? A generation dead in the wilderness. But who provided for their every need while they were in the wilderness? God did. Who actually delivered the Canaanites into their hands and gave them the land? It was God. Who provided the judges who delivered justice in the land? It was God. Who led them astray to worship other gods and reject them? It was men. And what did it get them? Defeat at the hands of their enemies, oppression, fear, insecurity, injustice, dissipation, who just delivered the Philistines into their hands? It was God. And so now who do they want to rule over them? A man. So again, I can ask, isn't it obvious how they're hoping in the wrong thing? But I wonder how often are you and I tempted by the same trap, right? Who or what do you hope in? What bait does your heart want to gobble up? There's a few that came to mind as we're thinking. There's, there's the leader, right, just like the Israelites. In our individualistic age, we tend not to look so much 
to any one leader with hope, but we do tend to look at them with dread or with anger. And I think it tells you the same thing about what's going on in your heart either way. This worldly leader has the power to help or harm me in ways that are outside of my control, which is true, but they do not have power over you that is outside of God's control. He is the power behind all authority who directs the hearts of kings wherever he pleases. Or perhaps it's status. What's got to be true in your life for you to be okay? Is it a number in a bank account? Is it your marital status? Is it the security of your job? Do your neighbors, your customers, or the person uh, beside you think well of you? If they like you, will you have justice, leadership, and security? Or perhaps the truer and better hope. There's only one leader who won't disappoint you. Samuel knew back in chapter 8 when the people's desire for a king seemed wrong to him. So what did he do? He prayed. He turned to the Lord. Uh, the king, uh, Psalm 95.3 says, The Lord is a great God, a king above all gods. And so when faced with uncertainty, when faced with temptation, as the Israelites were here, do you turn to God, his word, and his people? Or do you set your eyes on your neighbors at work, your neighbors on mom blogs, your neighbors in the social media feed, and copy them? So friends, let's pay attention to the lesson Israel's rejection of God teaches us this morning. They are his chosen people. He delivered them. He spoke to them by his prophetic word. He provided for them. And still, they harden their hearts against him. And if they can so easily reject him, right? They just had the, the Ebenezer. It's, it's there. It's not far from Mizpah where they're making these pleas. We can follow in the same footsteps. So be careful, as the people of God, what Walker encouraged us to do this morning from Hebrews 10, to encourage one another to place all of our hope in the true and better king and to live together for his glory. Now, we are, uh, as we, we look, we see a misplaced hope in a reluctant king. Verse 20, 21. <clears throat> so Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. And then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans, and the Matrite clan was selected. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they searched for him, they couldn't find him. So Samuel has lined up the people. He narrows down to the tribe of Benjamin by lot. And I, I'm imagining Saul, right? He knew. Just recently, God said, you're king. He gave him a bunch of evidences that he can't ignore. You're king. And then they line up, maybe it won't happen. And then the tribe of Benjamin is selected. And I just imagine his stomach falling out of his, of his body right there. He, uh, he kept it to himself when he knew that he would be king. Early evidence that he would be a reluctant king. And then he goes on. They, they narrow in as they get to uh, him. And as the noose of leadership is tightening around Saul's neck, he does the last thing he can think of to avoid responsibility. He literally hides from it. The people have rejected God and they ask him for a king and Saul is ready to reject the call to be king. As he's chosen, they're, they're drawing him out by lots and finally Saul, son of Kish, is chosen and they can't find him. They need God even in their moment of rejection to deliver their king to them. The layers of irony here are unbelievable. Even as Israel is rejecting God, he helps them find their king. So the helplessness of the people of God, apart from the work of God, 
should not be missed here. And so we can remember what we learned about Saul last week, as Matt pointed out several things. Uh, what you see is not always what you get. Saul was outwardly impressive, but inwardly flimsy. He did not lead. He could not complete a mission, even one to find some donkeys. He resisted going to the man of God, Samuel. He wasn't prepared to be generous to the prophet, and he didn't want to, to receive the prophet's guidance, even though since chapter 3, all of Israel has known Samuel to be a confirmed prophet of the Lord. And we're warned in Deuteronomy 18 that ignoring the words of the prophet will get you cut off from the people. Even though he saw repeated impossible to dismiss evidences that God has chosen him to lead, he kept it to himself, and he is avoiding God's call to lead his people. Now, this past week in small group discussion, which little parenthetical uh, commercial for small groups, it was so awesome to hear the people in our group think through what's going on with Saul. And, and they raised a question here that I think is, is helpful. It was helpful to me that, uh, could you take this as a sign of humility? You know, is maybe, maybe Saul is just saying, hey, maybe I'm not the guy. Maybe this is too big for any person. Maybe God should stay king. There's two reasons why I agree with Matt's assessment of Saul's character from the context. Number one, uh, doubt does not equal humility. God has confirmed the decision. When God commands something, he empowers it. He does not have to give signs and wonders to show that he's for it. He gave his word. So I'm reminded of Barak and Deborah. Barak, in spite of God's clear call, will not go to battle against King Sisera unless Deborah goes. He needs help. He needs someone to take him. And so Deborah gets the glory. Gideon, in spite of God's clear and repeated call, insists on absolute certainty before he's willing to go to battle. And he's not heralded there for his fearfulness. And so Saul, after being given several, several clear signs that he was chosen by God, hides from the call. And I wonder, how are you tempted here? If God calls you to forgive, do you need absolute certainty that a person will never sin against you again before you're willing to follow the Lord in obedience to trust his commands? If God calls you to open-handed living, do you need to see that the 401k is sitting on solid ground before you're willing to sacrifice for the sake of others? If God calls you to share the gospel, do you believe that he has the power and authority to change hearts as they hear his word? Or do you struggle with fear or a self-centered heart that doesn't even notice the opportunity? Humility is possible when we say with Christ, not my will, but yours, Father. And not in a self-defeating, resigned way. I'm just stuck with this, as Saul seems to have been. But with a heart that trusts that his way is right and that he will carry us along it as the good shepherd of Psalm 23. The second reason uh, that, that I think that uh, Matt was right about his character, humility is God and others-centered and not self-centered. So Saul sits beside David in the Old Testament text. David is a man after God's own heart because he looks to, relies on, takes risks in the name of, and believes on God. Saul, on the other hand, protects himself, fights to maintain face, hides from responsibility and risk, and once he gains authority, misuses it for his own temporary gain. So even when Saul is ruling, we see in 2 Samuel that the people knew that David was God's hand of judgment against their enemies while Saul kept himself safe. And again, I ask, how are you tempted here? Do you feel the burden of your sin or do you defend it? Do you turn quickly to repent or run quickly to excuse yourself? 
When Saul sends, he always has a reason. When David sends, he responds with a broken and contrite spirit. So you could read uh, this afternoon. I'm going to give you homework several times here. Psalm 51. And consider your awareness of sin. Consider your posture towards your sin. Consider God's posture towards a repentant sinner. And praise him for his mercy and his grace. And so we see that King Saul is a doubting, self-centered man. And in a lot of ways, we have every reason to be doubting, self-centered people. We can't see the future. We can't provide for everything that we need. We do have big looming fears. And so we should do what we can for ourselves, at least while we still can, if God is not the true king. But if he is king, then you have every reason to live with confidence and open-handedness. He's commanded it, empowered it, He's purchased it through Christ. And he will be with you as you live it out, even to the end of the age. As the hymn writer Helen Limmel encourages us, set your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so by setting your eyes on Jesus, you will be looking to the only source of justice, leadership, and security that can truly deliver. Now, Saul hiding, self-centered, avoiding responsibility. Verse 23, they've been told, God told them, here he is, go get him. They ran and got him from there. And when he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There's no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel proclaimed to the people the rights of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll, which he placed in the presence of the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and brave men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But some wicked men, some worthless men, said, How can this guy save us? They despised him and did not bring him a gift. But Saul said nothing. Saul was as if he were deaf. And so I think you can notice that there are five parties involved in the story here. Party number one is God. Party number two, Samuel. Party three, Saul. Party four, we've got the happy Israelites. Party five, the worthless Israelites. So God has been rejected, but he's merciful. He's choosing, confirming, revealing, and now finding a king. Samuel is faithful. He's looking to God to provide for his people, obedient in spite of what seems like some misgivings about Saul in the last couple of chapters. As he presents God's chosen king to his people, he's honoring God in a way that the people are not. Do you see the Lord's chosen one? He stands out. Hasn't God chosen well? And then the happy Israelites cry out, long live the king. And it's still kind of dripping with irony. The people are really excited about a guy they just had to dust off from the baskets and rugs of the baggage train. When your heart is dead set on a thing, anything that moves you closer to what you want looks like a blessing. If getting married is the best thing you can imagine, then moving towards marrying a fool can appear like a gift. If being happy is the best thing you can imagine, falling headfirst into sin can appear like a gift. And Saul after really trying hard to avoid the throne, went home after the ceremony. And God in his mercy provided some brave, worthy men to go with him and help him to establish the monarchy 
in Israel. And then the worthless Israelites. And I don't like it when I line up with the bad guys in a story, but uh, I can identify with the question that they're asking. The Bible identifies them as worthless people, so we've got to agree with that assessment. And they have instant buyer's remorse. They ask the question, how could this guy save us? They're just as guilty as the others of looking only to the outside, though. They're just seeing it from the other angle. The happy Israelites are excited to have an outwardly impressive king. The worthless Israelites are unhappy to have a clueless, reluctant king. Neither of them seem to be looking to God, the one who provided them with a king. Both are seeing the outside. He's shiny. He's great. Celebrate. He can't deliver us. Reject him. Neither are looking to God, who has delivered them without a king and will deliver them through a king. And then Saul didn't say anything about the insults. Should he have? Are we just seeing more foreshadowing of his inability to unite and lead the people to face conflict? So by looking to the outward appearances, both groups of Israelites missed the point in this story. I think one of the things that we can do as we get to look back at this is to see through circumstance to sovereignty. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5-7 that we walk by faith and not by sight. Happy Israelites see his outward appearance and they believe that he'll be the one to provide them with what they want. The unhappy Israelites look at his reluctance and they don't believe that he can provide them with what they want. Saul knows that he's inadequate for the task. And in all three cases, the people are stuck on circumstance. When are you tempted to be spiritually nearsighted like this? I'm tempted to get locked into circumstance, to see the current moment or an imaginary future as a photograph can never change rather than seeing the unfolding of the story of God. But if God is sovereign, then with James we can consider trials joy because they're purposeful and they're meant to uh, develop our character to make us look like Christ. Like the writer to the Hebrews, we can endure suffering as discipline because it means that God is dealing with us as sons and daughters and that it will produce in us the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Watching this mess unfold can serve to whet the appetite of new covenant people for a true and better king. That Saul impresses his people because he's unique among the whole population is an interesting contrast to Jesus. He was nothing to look at outwardly. But he had the character to lead. Saul hid from responsibility, but Jesus inexorably sought it out. Saul hid from conflict. Jesus entered into it readily. Saul haphazardly ping-ponged his way through life where Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem, intent on delivering justice, leadership, and security to his chosen people. Saul received assurance that he was God's chosen king and he tried to dodge the office. Jesus knew that he was God's chosen sacrifice for sin and said, not my will, but yours be done and allowed himself to be taken to a cross and murdered, laying his life down for the people God sent him to save. So we can see, we've seen the misplaced hope of the people in a reluctant king placed in power over them. Saul doesn't have long to learn the ropes before he's faced with a major conflict that's been brewing since Genesis 3. Because now there's a snake in the garden. We look at chapter 11. Nahash the Ammonite came up and laid siege to Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. 
Nahash the Ammonite replied, I'll make, it, I'll make one with you on this condition, that I gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate all of Israel. So Nahash, uh, his name means serpent, same as what you see in Genesis 3. And he lays siege to Jabesh-Gilead. It's another place with a recent and rotten history back in Judges 20 and 21 with the express purpose of humiliating all of Israel. So let's kind of put this into redemptive history. In Genesis 3, what's the serpent up to in the garden? He wants to upend creation and in so doing deface humanity and dethrone God. We know that he's successful in some part in leading Adam and Eve to sin and that all three of them were cursed for their rebellion. And so in Genesis 3.15, God curses the serpent by saying, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. As we look back on that as New Testament people, we see something of a proto-gospel. There's one who will be born of Eve who will defeat the serpent the dragon, Satan, once and for all. But you can see this conflict between the the children of the promise, the seed of the promise, and the seed of the serpent unfold throughout your Old Testament. You see some pairs, Cain and Abel. You see uh, Seth and Lamech. You see Noah and then Ham and Canaan. You see Isaac and Ishmael. And we can follow the sons of the promise all the way to Christ who is the promised seed that will crush the serpent once and for all. But in this mini-story, in in chapter 11 here, Nahash the serpent wants to upend the promised land, deface humanity, literally, and dethrone God. The Ammonites, descended from Lot by his younger daughter, have their own gods, Molech, who we've been warned against in the Old Testament not to sacrifice our children to him, and Milcah, who they believe will overcome the God of the Israelites. Nahash says, I'll make a treaty with you. And when you see that make a treaty, literally to cut a treaty, reminiscent of what happened in Genesis 15 when God cuts a treaty with Abraham. So they cut animals in half. God alone walks the path, promising to care for his people, to fulfill his promises to Abraham. And in the image of that ceremony, condemning himself to the same fate of the bisected animals if he lets down his end of the bargain. Now, Nahash is willing to cut a treaty if he can literally cut it out of the people of Israel. This gouging out the right eye would render them blind for battle. If they're holding a shield and they couldn't see out of the right eye, they couldn't defend themselves, they would be handicapped and subservient for life, but still capable to work. It would serve as a a visual reminder of who is the master and who is a slave. A constant and permanent humiliation of God's people in God's place. In verse 3, the elders of Jabesh respond, Don't do anything to us for seven days, the elders of Jabesh said to him, and let us send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. If no one saves us, we'll surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and told the terms to the people, all wept aloud. And just then, Saul was coming in from the field behind his oxen. What's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired. And they repeated to him the words of the men from Jabesh. So facing the threat, forgetting Deuteronomy 20, 
all the men of Jabesh-Gilead just roll over. They ask Nahash, just let them send messengers, and if no one delivers us, we'll, we'll come out to you. A little potential word play here. It's ambiguous. Do we mean come out to you to battle? Come out to you to surrender? Well, clever play. Give them some time. And then it, it seems like Nahash is just like movie bad guy monologuing. He gives them a seven-day recess, and he seems super confident that whatever happens, he's going to be able to do whatever he wants to them. Uh, maybe he even likes the idea of, of kind of turning the screws on the people so that they suffer anticipating what will happen in seven days' time. He's a ruler who believes he's secure in his might. And so the messengers get to Gibeah of Saul. Gibeah just means the hill, so it's the hill where Saul lives. And they announce Nahash's terms to the people. And there's no indication that anyone even asked where Saul was or that he even seemed to be a king to them. In fact, when Saul comes back in from blue-collar kinging, working the fields, he has to ask what's going on. Why is everyone so upset? They don't seem to be looking to him as the deliverer that they were hoping for in chapters 8 through 10. But there is a deliverer. All right, so again, the story so far, a misplaced hope and a reluctant king who faces a snake in the garden who's defeated by God, our deliverer. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him, and his anger burned furiously. He took a team of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by messengers who said, this is what will be done to the ox of anyone who doesn't march behind Saul and Samuel. And as a result, the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they went out united. So when Saul hears how Nahash is oppressing and attacking the people of God, the Spirit of God came powerfully on Saul. This is just like the Spirit rushing powerfully on Samson before he carries out great acts of deliverance from the Philistines, like killing a thousand of them at once with the jawbone of a donkey and then writing a song about it. He responds to the threat of injustice with a call to arms that is eerily reminiscent of the last time someone sent a message to all of Israel from Benjamin. Thankfully, this time, it's an ox, and he threatens their livestock and not their lives. The people of God, moved by the Spirit of God, respond to the king's call to arms, and they go out together to face the Ammonites. But notice something sinister. Saul motivates the people by fear. He takes their warriors and supplies by threat of force. Typically, when you see the terror of the Lord falling on a group in the Old Testament, it's the enemies of Israel, not the Israelites themselves. Saul does the things Samuel warned them that a king would do as his first act of kingly power. And then in verse 8, Saul counted them at Bezek. There were 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 men from Judah, which was a proportional response. Again, unlike the story in Judges 20 and 21. He told the messengers who had come, tell this to the men of Jabesh Gilead. Deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. So the messengers told the men of Jabesh Gilead, and they rejoiced. Then the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, tomorrow we will come out, and you can do whatever you want to us. So they've assembled. They have sent messengers promising relief, and upon receiving the message, they rejoice. And again, the wordplay. And then in verse 11, next day, Saul organized the troops into three divisions. During the morning watch, it's like 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. They're, they're up early. They invaded the Ammonite camp and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. So six hours of hand-to-hand -hand combat here. There were survivors, but they were so scattered that no two of them 
were left together. Now, when you read a story like that in the Old Testament, it's exciting. It could be an action movie. But I think what the author here is trying to do is point to us the main character in the first act of deliverance that Saul makes as king. So uh, we have something that uh, authors use called a chiasm, where we kind of work our way in and out, mirroring a main point. So in verse 6, we have the Spirit of God as the center of the center of what's going on in this passage. And then on either end, in verses 1 and 2, the Ammonites surround. And on the back end, verse 11, they scatter. Then in verse 3, we have messengers go out. And in verse uh, 10, they are received. Messengers received. And then we have in uh, verse uh, 4, a message to Saul. And then in verse, excuse me, oh boy, writing down low is tough. Uh, we have a message from Saul. And then in 5, we have uh, Saul uh, gathering the people. And then in uh, 7 and 8, we have Saul leading and uh, assessing the people. So it mirrors in and out to the central character of the whole story so far, who is God, who is providing a way for them in spite of their immediately preceding rejection of him. So the story about Israel's misplaced hope and a reluctant king who faced a snake in the garden who's defeated by God our deliverer is a common storyline even in our own lives. As we've asked questions about temptations throughout the message, I hope that you found, as I did, that it's exceedingly easy to do what the Israelites did. And when I'm spiritually nearsighted and all I can look to are my circumstances, it's tough to believe that God is my sovereign deliverer. So let me ask you this. What would change about your life if you believed that God would come to your aid? We look in uh, Deuteronomy 7. This won't be on the screen. It kind of came to me as we were working on this. Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 9. The Lord has set his heart on you and chose you. Not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. So to, to understand all the things that are going on in this story of kingship, another, another piece of homework, right? Set aside some time to read through Deuteronomy as we're continuing to work our way through First and Second Samuel and First Kings. 
And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, we have a resource to help you with that. You can go to the back at the end of the service to the new here banner. And in a uh, welcome bag, there's a, a 30 days in Deuteronomy study guide, uh, devotional guide uh, that Matt put together uh, when we studied through this previously. Uh, you could also, uh, there's a podcast called Bible Talk put together by the people at Nine Marks where they have expositional conversations and talk their way through uh, Deuteronomy in a way that's really, un- really helpful for giving us context for what's going on here. And when you look through Deuteronomy, I would like for you to look for all the ways that God calls, cares, provides, delivers, gives grace to, and makes and keeps covenant promises with his people. We are a people who need to be reminded of his faithfulness. And nothing reminds us better of God's faithfulness than God's word. Then consider the true and better king, Jesus. God ultimately has come to your aid in the person and work of his son. He made peace by the blood of Christ on the cross. Do you have needs? Are you burdened by sin, yours and others? A king is meant to care for his people. And there is no king who loves and serves his people better than Christ, who laid his life down for them. And there is no king so powerful who could take his life back up again, defeating sin and death eternally. So I want you to set your eyes on that king. This has been our habit. I'll give you a couple of minutes for silence and reflection. And as we do that, I want you to consider your hope in hollow kings, Christian and non-Christian alike. Ask the Lord to help you see clearly where you're trusting in anything or anyone besides Christ for justice, for leadership, for security. Consider where you are spiritually nearsighted and ask God to teach you to see sovereignty, see through circumstance to sovereignty. Father, we are grateful that you set your heart on us, that you chose us who are in Christ. Not because we were smart or wise or successful in the eyes of the world, but we were small. 
God, we are grateful that because you loved us and you keep your word, that you kept the promises that you made from the beginning of the Bible to this day to call a people for yourself, to protect them, to provide for them, to lead them with a strong hand, to redeem them. God, we know that you are a faithful God who keeps your gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations. And Lord, we also know that we are a people prone to misplaced hope, that we look to all manner of hollow kings and hope for uh, what is ultimate and hope for what is little. But God, we have a better king in Christ, a king eternal, a king who has overcome sin and death, who has overcome the serpent once and for all. And God, we know that he is our deliverer who made us a people by the blood of Christ to make peace between us, between you and us. And God, I pray for those in the room who do not know that peace that your spirit would move in them this morning to make this the aroma of life to them and not the stench of death. God, I pray for those of us who are in Christ that we would look to Christ for our hope that we would be quick to notice our sin, quick to see our idolatry, quick to see where our hollow kings are holding up our hopes and that we would repent and that we would trust you and that you would teach us to see through circumstance to your sovereignty. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.